Hello and welcome to unofficial part of the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. The Big Idea is our series on creativity in sports marketing with my regular co-host Simon Moore, the award-winning consulting creative director. And our guest is David Proudlock, Chief Strategy Officer at CPB London. The Cannes Lion International Festival of Creativity is home to the world's most prestigious advertising awards. The blurb says that Cannes celebrates creativity, effectiveness and innovation in the global advertising, marketing and communication industries. An award in the sports category has become much sought after by sports marketing agencies and their clients. But what sort of work is getting rewarded with a gong? And what does that mean for the relationship between sport and the creative industry today? This week's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Institute of Sports Humanities and Loughborough University London. The two organisations recently launched the new Leadership in Sport Masters course running from autumn 2023. Uniquely, the course has been designed for executives working in the sports industry, as well as athletes seeking specialised education to support their professional development. The Masters course fits alongside busy jobs and busy lives. It's ideal for people seeking to develop their impact and effectiveness in leading and managing individuals, teams and organisations. The mission of ISH, which is led by the former England cricket selector, professional cricketer and author Ed Smith, is to nurture and inspire sports current and future leaders around the world. Students on the MA Leadership in Sport programme will join an amazing ecosystem of sports experts. Loughborough University has been ranked the number one university for sports-related subjects for the past seven years. So the world's top sports university is working in tandem with a unique sports network at ISH. The new intake starts in October 2023 and the applications are currently open. And you can find out more by clicking a link in the show notes to this podcast. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport, a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter and follow us on Twitter at Unofficial Partner. So how do you two know each other? We worked together in the glory days of cake. We sat opposite each other and we occasionally worked. We mostly discussed the wire. That's what we did a lot of the time. Only occasionally we'd do a little bit of work, but mostly we talked about the wire. We were pretty good on the wire. The work was a bit... Yeah. Oh, yeah, the work was all over the shop. The now defunct cake, the cake that is no more. Dead yeah, milk, it's yeah, been eaten. Yeah. I'm sort of surprised I keep seeing all these people like eulogizing about it. There's a lot of sort of glory days chat, and you kind of say, yeah, okay, all right. But And there's also a lot of that generation one. There's a lot of mentions of the Cumberland, which was everyone calls the sausage, which was just right. down the road from uh, the original Olympia. And the Kensington one. Yeah, yeah, Olympia, North End Road. That's the first kind of big office. And so there's a lot of those people who are kind of reminiscent of that time. And then there's a kind of a lot of now people who've sort of been Havis people. There doesn't seem to be that many from our, our time. But anyway. Yeah. It's odd that the, the agency nostalgia is quite an interesting thing, isn't it? People do get attached to moments in time because they're so transitory, aren't they? You spend a few years there and they can be yeah. like peak, peaks or troughs or whatever. But it's people cling on to the whole ecosystem that was around it. It's like a university year or a college year or something. I think it's very much like a university year, yeah. And I think it's like a big chunk of kind of growing up, a kind of a significant agency for lots of people where they do it. And I think certain agencies have a culture. I don't think it's unique to Cake, but I think certain agencies have a culture that kind of, 
that you're there at a certain time. There's a lot of after hours, drinking, going out, making new friends. You know, you you, you met your well, wife. It, well, you didn't meet your wife there, but you certainly kind of connected there, didn't you, David? She She tried and failed to replace me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, but what she, uh, <laughs> that sounds like but, a story. Yeah, but I think the music thing helped with Cake as well, hasn't it? It was so yeah. entertainment so... Because I, yeah. I think you're right, like the... Because I think when you first moved to London, it is just extended university. You know, like all my mates that stayed up north had like proper jobs and settled down. <laughs> and then you come to London and you're like, you're basically like hitting 40 and you're still acting like you were 22. Yeah. Some of us have gone past 50 and we're still acting like we're 22. <laughs> so you guys work together as well, right? At, yeah. at Havas. At Havas, yeah. 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 Houses wire chat. Very poor. I think it had faded by then. <laughs> yeah. I, got, I, got the, I got the butt end of the wire chat. David, you've just been to Cannes. That might be our way into this conversation. To be honest, I've sort of professionally avoided it, my career, because it's not really my vibe. Uh, well, I didn't think it was my vibe. And then I got dragged to it because someone very senior at our company has left, so I needed to go and represent. And and actually, I was doing a talk at Cannes for one of our clients, Pernod Ricard. Our agency's part of Stagwell, and Stagwell had an area down on the beach, which is called the Sports Beach, funnily enough. So it was... Uh, Sort of sport for the whole week they had various sports people most of them were americans so none of us knew who they were apart from when someone fucking massive walked past you it was like taller than me because i'm really tall was clearly a basketball player and someone that was like five times wider than me was obviously an american footballer and then there was like a few like footballers and stuff for the for the european contingent so alan shearer andy cole andrew cole sorry uh patrice Sepra. so we did a bit of hanging around there but really my, my main thing was like just I did this talk to Ricard about the neuroscience of making memories and the crucial role of unpredictability in enabling you to create memories. And then, then I just drank loads of rosé. Yeah. So. There's a sort of context to when you see old American sports people, you think, oh, it's really glamorous. Look, you know, it's an NBA player, an NFL player. And you think, oh, fucking hell, it's Shearer. You know, it's like that. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Cole. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Well, the thing, yeah, yeah they they had uh, most of the Americans were actually like still playing sport, as in they were still like they weren't retired or anything. All of the footballers were were retired. There was Michael Johnson was there. There was a few old athletes, but yeah, they were the Americans were definitely in better shape and had a lot better, more expensive looking jewelry. But it, I would say that the festival's like very funny, like because I suppose I expected it to be more about creativity since it's like the festival of creativity. Yeah. <laughs> I would sum it up as a tech and media festival like mm. i mean it's just i don't know if you've been but i mean it's just like down that beach and it's just loads of kind of identical beach bars that have been built on the beach yeah, yeah so and i've then, been a few times yeah, yeah and it, it i i've as i was saying to you david that like this was the first year i looked at it normally it's actually get a bit of envy i've had some great times you know virtually yeah. seeing the sun come up outside the gutter bar chatting rubbish to people and you know it, it, and genuinely had a, a brilliant time but this yeah. is the first year like Glastonbury, weirdly, where I didn't go, oh, I wish I was there. I sort of looked at it and thought, oh, God, I'm glad yeah. I'm not in all that nonsense. But I didn't see I, any good creativity whatsoever. I did see some good bands at Spotify, though, so that was good. It is also yeah. absolutely jam-packed full of wankers, isn't it? That's That hasn't changed. Well, the, the one thing I did think was, like, I think if you're, like, a, a born schmoozer, it's, like, the perfect place on planet Earth for you. But equally, if you're not really that into it, which I'm not, and you're just with your own little crew, it's not sort of forced in your face either. Like, you know, I think people sort of, it takes a 
shit to know a shit. (laughs) They know whether you're, you're, you're in on the schmooze or not. So we, we, you know, we just had like a laugh and it was a good time, but it didn't change my mind about, about it at the same time. It's interesting you say about the, the, the sort of absence of creativity and the presence of tech. I guess it's inevitable, but it's also odd, isn't it? In, the, in terms of it's, that was, it was supposed to be about creativity initially, at least. Yeah, I think, I think so much, from what I gathered, it's, it's just so much of deal making. So like a friend of mine who was until recently very high up at Snapchat and he went for the first time, not and he was at Twitter before that, and he was there the first time back in an agency world. And he was like, every time I'm here, I'm just in a room from like 8 a.m., just pitching like nonstop to people till about 11 and then I go out and get smashed. And I think, I suppose, I think it's just there for, yeah, making those deals. And I just, I just don't think, you know, like pictures and advertising and creative deals are made like that anymore. And I, I, I assume they probably were, you know, as a place to come and like get something over the line or, you know, unlock that opportunity and kind of talk the talk. But I think, you know, I think clients are, more interested in hearing about tech and efficiency and numbers as well like so yeah, yeah. i think it's just a knock-on of the wider impact of the of the world weirdly the film festival is like always sort of portrayed as this you know it's a red carpet glamour moment all these fabulous people the, the palm door all that kind of stuff you know people protesting about roman polanski at some point you know all that kind of stuff and then well, actually, what the real thrust of Cannes Film Festival is, is lots of little hotel rooms with people doing deals on films that you'll never, ever see because they're mm. tiny and small and half of them won't even get made. And that's it's kind of just yeah. all about business deals. That's mostly what it's about, strangely. Yeah. It's a bit like, I mean, the the sport version of that is Sportel. So in Monaco, it's in, in September, October time. And it's the same thing. And there might be a layer of entertainment, you know, around it of... of an award or a, a conference or something, but actually it's the Premier League selling TV rights to, you know, South America or whatever. So if you are in that world, it is unmissable because if you, you've got to be there because that's where all the clients go. And then that's, you know, yeah. you're just selling, selling your stuff. But, yeah. uh, and, I, and I think, so like I said, I mean, all of that beach was just dominated by American tech. And I think one of the things we were talking about as well was just how American all of the people were. So it was and that, like having not been, I was with someone that had been 22 years in a row. And she's just saying how it's gone from, it was like all Europeans and just gradually and gradually it's just got more and more American. And I very rarely heard a non-American accent when we were just sort of walking up and down the, the beach yeah. and around the town. It's, I think, you know, it's all just big tech, big tech, big tech, holding companies. And yeah, I, I agree. I think it probably is unmissable for all of those people. But I suppose what you want out of the back of it. Sport has got a peculiar, sports marketing has got a sort of, not an odd relationship, but it's it's a slightly late relationship with, can we talk about the awards and the grand prix and the gold silvers and all of that we'll look at that in a minute but i think the sports marketing sector particularly the sports marketing agency sector holds can up very high it's become the thing that okay we need a lion now that's the gold standard no pun intended in a way that for other awards there's a bit of okay i'm over awards we make that statement of i'm being defined now by not entering into awards i'm above that i'm you know beyond that whereas i think can and sports creativity they don't do that it's still very important the big question is what does this tell us about creativity in sports so this this podcast the big idea is an opportunity to get into what's that relationship like and we say what we like and what we don't like i'm looking at the the list and the winner and the golds and the silvers and trying to draw out themes. And 
I think probably what we should do is just go through a few of them and just say whether what we like and what we don't like. But were you struck, either of you, by what's happening here? If this is a signal to the rest of the marketplace that this is what the high point of creativity in 2023 is in relation to sport, is there any conclusions to draw before we get into the detail? I mean, two things that I noticed is I've almost divided the, the ideas we had on this list into two camps, which one is purpose. And I think... But over half of them have got some sort of altruistic purpose, values, whatever you want to call it, lens through them. And then I think all the other ones are just pure entertainment. Right. Yes, I think I that's fair. I mean, I think I think there is an awful lot of purpose there. There's an awful lot of will you sport as a vehicle to talk about another issue. And that's normally because your product is, you know, take one of the goals of something like Kimberly Clark, then you're not directly connected to sport you don't make sport products you don't produce sport yourself you just you know you are tangentially connected but it also uh, speaks to the wider industry of obsession with purpose and yeah. actually just just what actually wins awards as well i was just yeah. doing a talk about can, a wider thing on can yesterday and i think we were, said that 56 percent of the grand prix winners were purpose which is actually down from 75 percent. i think it was last year but it's uh, i think just 20 years ago or something it was like 10 percent of Grand Prix winners were purpose-driven. I think just the whole, in, you know, people want to vote for and award things that make them feel good, and purpose yeah. makes them feel good. And as we've discussed on here before, you know, our industry has become embarrassed about itself. It's become embarrassed that we sell stuff. You know, that's, that's what we've become. We're deeply issued. So we can make ourselves feel better by doing something purposey. It seems to solve the problem of the deep uncomfortableness we have with the role we play in society. But I never hear that back in research. Whenever I do research, I'm more likely to hear you're just an orange juice or you're just a yeah. insert product or category here. Yeah, like, yeah, of course. What the hell are you talking about this for? Well, sport Sorry. is one of the things that people actually do care about. Well, it's interesting this because some of these purpose things I was thinking when I was watching them, I sort of had a, there's sort of like two things that I was sort of looking at, which one is how much do I really admire the, the creativity? And then how much would anyone into sport actually care about this? So in Easter, I think I told you this time when I saw you last, but when I was in Easter, I went home to my son was staying with my parents and I got into a conversation with a guy in my local pub. He used to play for like the same football team that I used to play on when I was younger. And he told me that he was, he just retired and he was like 24. And I was like, oh God, man, like, like what happened? Did you like hurt your knee or like break your leg? And he's like, oh, I just, I can't afford the petrol money. So, like, basically, if I, if I go and play football on Saturday, I can't drive to the away matches, and then I can't work that day. So, you know, I'm 24, I can't lose 80 quid. And, I, and then at that same time, Davos was on, and at the end of Davos, they give a list of all the, the big concerns and, like, threats to mankind. And I was reading <laughs> through the top 10, and for some reason, I can't remember why, but one, number four or number five was, like, biodiversity. And I was just like try and talk to this 24-year-old kid who's had to like give up on his the biggest passion of his life for football and, and that, that biodiversity matters when he's worried, about, <laughs> he's worried about petrol money and I was sort of looking at some of these campaigns and I think of like you know a lot of my sort of connection back to my friends in like sport is through WhatsApp and you know you just send them people things mm. I was thinking like how many people really care about a blind sportscaster or you know like any of these and they're amazing I love the work but are they really getting talked about by the fans of that sport? Question mark. I mean, this is Brexit, isn't it? That 
the marketing and advertising world and the media world, metropolitan elites have lost contact with real world, real people as defined by Nigel Farage. And that's been manipulated. But there is truth in that, in that actually I agree with you. And I wonder about that connection to normal people from the bubble that is that can represents and that the, the industry, you know, marketing industry represents. Yes, I think they've become very disconnected from the two. That's the old uh, the old story. There was a guy, his name will come back to me, but he's advertising legend, and he said he gets into a cab now. And two things: one, like it used to be like really admirable to go, oh, I work in advertising, someone go, oh, I love that one that goes, you know. And he said yeah. that never happens anymore. Then people always go, well, why don't they do one that, that? I used to love this one. And it's always like one from the 80s or 90s, you know? Mm. It's always kind of some, even if it's person's relatively young, it'll be like, I love that Carly Black label. Or, you know, that, you just sort of stop making that kind of, that work that people actually loved. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think in some ways, I think we've gone back to a sort of like pre-burn back era, you know, where, you know, like advertising in the 20s or whatever, it's like, how big is your mousetrap? And here's somebody smiling, telling you that it's the most effective mousetrap and they're very beautiful. And now that's sort of what in, the impact Instagram in a way has had, you know, it's like, hey, somebody very attractive to smile while holding your product and then yeah. just tell you about the efficacy of it rather than the, the feeling behind it. But I, so I mean, this work that we're looking at here is pitched into that world, isn't it? So what you're saying is that there is a sort of performance marketing, to use a jargon, at, at one end where you are holding something up and saying, look, it works, or you're unboxing something on YouTube or on TikTok and saying, look, this is really good, or, you know, you should buy this. Straight down the middle, sales. So one question I've got here is is actually about form. A lot of it, some of these are 10 minutes long. Yeah, it is interesting that that is a good point. I think that a lot of it, like the Nike ad is like five minutes. I suppose nothing in here fits into that sort of volume of, you know, meta media buy of, kind of three seconds and, and get done I suppose like what we're looking at through these campaigns though I guess at the same time is is the sort of case study video so I suppose it's how this stuff gets kind of carved up and worked across an ecosystem but I think a lot of these ideas they're not sort of like traditional films as well you know they're more brand action and sort of traditional kind of PR sort of social conversation starters which i think has helped and one of the reasons they've probably been into the values slash purpose piece as well to to sort of facilitate that style of campaign but i still think you know like value is still super important like i, I work on a lot of alcohol brands at the moment and there's a campaign in spain that is achieving all of the metrics that everybody wanted to achieve in terms of like recall and brand but the film's three minutes long and it doesn't show any of the product and it doesn't show any of the brand, but the value of the content is such that it's actually doing all the things that advertising is meant to do. I suppose value creation and this stuff, and I think particularly when it comes to platforms like sport or music where you're trying to connect on a, on a passion point, I think you have to think of your brand less as a sponsor and more of a creator. Because I think, you know, sponsorship is easily replaceable. Like both Simon and I, many moons ago, worked on Carling. And Carling used to sponsor the Academy Group. It was the number one brand in music for the entire time we worked together, Simon, I would think. Indeed it was, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and then one year, O2 offered four times what they could pay for the sponsorship. And now I doubt Carling's even in the top 20 brands for music in the UK. You know, so you've got to, I think if you're just putting your logo up against something, you're sort of forgotten. And I think what these brands are doing, I suppose, is 
adding value into those communities. Now we can question whether that value is purely creative for people like us and whether it gets to the proper value of like to the audience. And I think for me, the best ones probably do that. But I think at least, you know, I think it's that sort of cut through and really using these platforms like sport to create something of value to get those conversations going and not just put your logo up. Right. Should we get into one? What if we start at the top with the Grand Prix winner? What I was thinking about doing is I might just run short clips and then we just bounce off it. Basketball is a very fast-moving sport. If you can't see it, it can make it a very difficult sport to follow. My name is Cameron Black, and uh, I was born completely blind. It's always been my dream to be a sports broadcaster. For a full year, I helped create a new language. I pushed my senses Very quick, up and down, up and down. to develop a new set of technologies. Using spatial audio, Cameron is going to have audio experience that places him in the center of the game. A new vocabulary of sounds that told me what play was happening and where. We've created a haptic language, a layer on top of the audio to help emphasize. Cameron Black. Cameron Black. Cameron Black. Commentating blind. Who else can ever do that? Go change sports entertainment for everyone. My name's Cameron Black. Signing off. I saw this, and I've got this in front of me. So it's Michelob Ultra, Dreamcaster, Entertainment for Sport, Grand Prix at Cannes Lion 2023. And then the spiel is, the NBA brings joy to billions, yet its joy isn't equally accessible to all. So a brand that famously believes it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Michelob Ultra needed to plant its flag in the cultural conversation about accessibility in sports. The problem, 284 million sports fans worldwide struggle to enjoy live games because they're blind or visually impaired. They can listen to play-by-play commentary, but anyone who loves basketball knows there's more to the game. So the insight is the joy of being a basketball fan comes from truly feeling the game. Then the strategy point is translate the action to a, of a basketball game into a language that blind and visually impaired fans can feel, not just listen to. So that's the nuts and bolts of it. What did we think? First of all, I wanted to know a lot more about what actually was happening because it seemed like a really interesting piece of technology of what, what is going on here? What is, how are they experiencing this? Bar some lasers going off in the background of him doing it you know, which I don't really think are having any, you know, don't put him on a stage like he's a DJ. Like, you know, what, what's actually going on? Tell, tell me what's actually he's actually experiencing. And then it seemed like if this is as incredible as it seems, which you're giving every impression that this is an incredible piece of technology, it feels like they're sort of pissing it away a little bit by commentating on a sports game. You know, you go, this is amazing. This is like creating a car that, that a, you know, a blind person can drive and then him going... I'm just going to pop to the local shops in it. You know, and you go, it seems like too little. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like you could be doing more with this. I don't know. I didn't know what it was really. Uh, yeah, that's my gut reaction to it. I mean, I the positive to me is that I really admire the sheer commitment to getting it done. You know, like I think it was like a year in the making or something. I thought it would be really easy just to run this on your own YouTube channel and no one ever sees it and i thought the fact they got it like prime time you know that it was like actual commentary on the game which gets it like into the living rooms i think it was like 10 million 
viewers or something. Like, I think that's like just an incredible feat to like pull something like that off because it's so hard just to get the world's worst campaign out, <laughs> let alone like all of this stuff. I think like a little bit like what you're touching on, Simon, there's a, there's a line in that case study video where it says paving the way for millions of visually impaired people. And I was like, hey, hey, where is it? My, my bullshit alone <laughs> went yeah, off yeah. quite significantly. Like, so it took a year for one person to do this to get <laughs> a sort of video out of it. So what, how are the other 280 million people actually benefiting from what you what you've done but yeah like, i mean i thought it was cool it was in, a conversation we were having in the office was like this sort of in the world of how hyper nervous everyone is particularly on the client side of like using somebody's disability to get your message across there were some people that i talked to that found that a little bit uncomfortable like, i didn't personally because I, I felt like that he was enjoying himself so much but there was some people i've talked to that felt a little bit icky about it but I don't know I don't know what you guys thought well the, the other bit that I was struck immediately was I've seen this before this is Coke's blind fan you take the fan to a game and that was a much because it wasn't a technical or the technology wasn't front and center it was much more emotionally powerful because they're in a crowd and the bloke is talking him through the game and it was it is for an old cynic like me, really emotional moment. And that, I thought, punched through much more than this did. This this took a sort of emotionally powerful idea and then just got lost in geeky tech stuff. So I think the basic, the same idea, but the tech got in the way of the story, which I think was a mistake. I'm really surprised they gave it a Grand Prix. I came away thinking, yeah, I, I can see all the component parts of this and what they're trying to do, but I didn't think it was... That sort of great. Yeah, I think when you when you compare it to Coca-Cola Blind Fan, Coca-Cola Blind Fan is much more, far more emotive and makes you really feel about what is the nature of fandom and what it is to feel passionate about a sport and a team. This didn't have that connection at all. Well, I think it's that scale, isn't it? Again, it's that it's, this was one guy's story. And like you said, the technology, because it's so unvisual, if that's even a word, or non-visual, you can't really understand what's going on. So you're just watching this guy buzzing, really, and then, like you said, some lasers to make it seem more entertaining. Whereas I guess that idea of being the fan, we can all relate to that, and we can all sort of put ourselves into that, that kind of position. In terms of the audience here and how the form in which this is supposed to be consumed by them, again, I'm trying to sort of work back through that. When would I ever come across this? I think for me that is why that prime time piece was so important for it like you know if this had just existed on like their own channels i don't think it's quite as good a campaign like, i think there is a there's a one of the reasons i think this one is like technology like you know in, right now is like such a hot thing and i think it was probably a really big feat to do it it's got a purpose bit as well but i also think that like, the media deal within it is so critical and i think you know media and creative creative have been pulled apart probably to make some people money rather than because it was the right thing to do and i think like you, this idea is not the same without an amazing kind of media buyer media partner to get it to those people but i think as i was saying earlier i think this is probably the campaign of the ones where i look through this list and i just go would any of my sports friends back home care that any that a beer brand or any brand had done this and i sort of gone no what sort of brand is michelob ultra I don't drink it. I don't. I don't have. Uh, uh, well, Mifflar Ultra's going through a very interesting renaissance at the moment, isn't it? If you know, I mean, this is. I mean, I don't. I don't want to get into this debate, but you know the the whole Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light moment. 
has meant that an absolute ton of people have moved over from Bud Light being America's number one beer to Michelob Ultra. There's been this enormous shift within the you know the middle America. There's been this huge backlash, and therefore it's become this much bigger brand than it was. Weirdly, not based on this. This campaign. Well, I was going to say, so, that presumably the Republican rednecks who dumped Budweiser because of their advertising presumably are not going to be thrilled by this one either. So it's a sort well, of I well, no, it's just... completely irrelevant. All of this is going on is irrelevance. And, well, and yes, actually exactly. what's happened is that they, they jumped on a Fox News anti-trans thing to jump, you know, Michelob just happened to be the, the next in line. This is almost defined by how irrelevant it is with the real world in that yeah. sense. Yes, but it'd be interesting to see what Michelob do next, given that you know their audience has kind of there's a kind of clear allegiance that has shifted into their camp. Is what do they do with that? As a, I bet I know what they're not going to do. Is... <laughs> <laughs> it is an interesting point, though, of whether they should strategically be continuing in anything purpose driven, because it's still like you know it could just be next man up again if it seemed like you're. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, even if it's just a different form of perceived wokeness that you're attaching yeah, yeah. yourself to, there's clearly that rebellion away from it. The other bit is that, I mean, before we move on to the others, is that beer and sport is such a central relationship. And I wonder if it's just out of boredom that you think, OK, we need to do something else other than just celebrate putting beer in the centre of this moment. Because that's what it is. And they're wedded together. And beer sponsorship money pays for a great deal of sport is one of, always one of the biggest selling you know biggest value categories and here's a beer brand doing something quite clever and obscure and you know purpose-driven yeah like, like you say i mean it's so commoditized it's so hard to cut through there's actually a campaign we haven't got on our list that won at can last year and it won it this year as well for creative effectiveness and it's for brahma which is a they've got another campaign yeah. on our list but did you see the foamy haircut one which was, it was last yeah. year as they they basically, in Brazil, they banned the sponsorship of beers on shirts so they couldn't talk anymore. But I would argue no one was actually talking about sponsorship on a shirt anyway. <laughs> uh, but they, so to do it, to sort of like hijack into the league, they invented this haircut called the foamy haircut. And it was essentially a sort of ginger dye around the size, like a beer color, and then a sort of silver foamy head on top. And they must have like paid some like very good Brazilian football. And then basically all of the footballers started doing this haircut. And I'm like, for me, that is like, I can actually see people talking about that. You know, it's sort of part of the yeah, culture from like Gaza, yeah, Phil funny. Foden, David Beckham. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's entertaining. Mm. You probably one of your ginger mates would like get it done or whatever. But yeah. And uh, like, but you know, it works well, at a level like for the fan and part of fan culture rather than yeah, a different culture that you're trying to pull into it. Also, because footballers' hair is part of the sort of culture of football, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of you're yeah. really going. We're aware of something that actually would be talked about about the game that's not actually the game. Yeah. Can we jump to another Grand Prix winner? We're not going to get through all of these, so I, I'm, I'm going to ask you in a minute to pick your favourite. Okay, so just bear that in mind. Just have that obviously, and I might ruin that setup by what I'm about to do. But I'd like to jump to David, the one you sent over. Uh, which is, and I'm going to muck up this pronunciation, Pedidosia. Is that right? World Cup delivery. I'm glad that you tried it and I didn't have to. Let's run with it. <laughs> Suddenly, I get a notification from Pedidosia. What the hell? I didn't order anything. I'm broke. What the fuck? 
I got scammed. I didn't order anything, pieces of shit. Why did Pedido Shaw, the number one delivery app in Argentina, send a fake push notification to all its users? Argentinians waited for the cup for 36 years. And finally, the national team delivered. The country was complete madness. But something was missing, the World Cup trophy. People are waiting for the trophy. At full speed, we cross-checked the flight number with public data from an aerospace traffic app and linked it to our delivery app. So right as the airplane wheels lifted off Qatar's soil, six million Pedido Shah users took the bait. To everyone's surprise, the classic delivery map, instead of a cheeseburger, showed the World Cup's journey home so every Argentinian could follow it in real time. When I opened it, you moved me to tears, Pedido Shah. Clap, clap, clap. It was the cup. I think I love you, Pedido Shah. Therefore, a simple push notification achieved something incredible, making Pedido Shah have 32% more mentions than Messi. Okay, I felt, given what we've said about the potential criticism of the first one that is obscurity and relevance, I thought this one ticked those boxes much better. I thought it was, one, it was very smart. Do you want to just explain what it is? Yeah, so the brand I can't pronounce is a del grocery delivery company in Argentina. And after Argentina won the World Cup, there was a delay in the World Cup being flown back to Argentina. So everyone's going mad. Obviously, we saw all those like massive street parties. So they sent out a fake notification to all of their users on their mobile app saying that their delivery was ready to depart. And everybody went crazy because they hadn't delivered anything and there was like lots of people kicking off. And then what they'd done, they were tracking the delivery of the World Cup trophy. So they're taking real-time data from like airports, time zones, etc. So you could track when the World Cup actually landed in Argentina itself. And the campaign was massive. Like it hit, I think, 6 million people, which I think was a very large portion of the country. They had 32% more mentions on social media than Messi the day the World Cup arrived, which is, that's pretty good impact, let's be honest. And best of all, they didn't actually spend any money on it at all. The spend, the budget was literally zero. So yeah, it was a re really smart campaign, massive impact. It was sort of funny, had a rogue pole, and it actually had some proper utility as well, which I think pretty incredible. I think that is the key to it. If they'd said, we're going to track this in real time, and we're going to send it out to all of our subscribers, for want of a better yeah. word, all the people on our list. I think it would have died on its arse. I think it's partly the kind yeah. of the outrage of kind of, I didn't order anything. Yeah. Why are you saying I'm getting a delivery? I think that's what works. The genius part of it is that. It's, yeah. it's the not announcing that you were going to do this thing. Yeah, I mean, I love the bits. I, lo I love the idea. I think, you know, sometimes you look at an idea and you just like, how did you pull that off? I used to work on like, EA games and things like that. And the golden rule of anything like that is just don't even try and touch the platform. Like, you know, it's just that marketing is like so divorced from like the tech side. It's always much more difficult than you think to not only do that, but then to use the platform to hoodwink your users. <laughs> like just the nervousness of like organizations. Like I'd love to have been in the meetings and see how they actually sold that through the business. Cause like you say, that's where the magic is and that sort of delivery. And I think, 
you know, I think people are so afraid to sort of shock and surprise their audience, even in just like traditional advertising, like all like this. But that's where like those strongest emotional reactions when you see all the tweets. It's actually the real power and the love of the brand comes from the like, yeah, the, the rug, the rug pull. It's like you say, it's not actually the act. It's almost like it's you got them with a bit of banter, basically. Yeah, yeah, because the, that shit can go wrong, can't it? I mean, that that sort of thing can go horribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite the Sorry, same, but I think uh, of like when Apple did the free U2 album, and it was like, it's just yeah. a free album, and you you know, like it's yeah. not the end of the world. There was literally like such anger. How can you put yeah. yeah. U2 in my. I hate U2, you know, that's. Yeah, yeah but the like, U2 are very polarizing. I remember being in a pub once, and there was a glass, a, a tip jar, and it just said, if you hate Bono, tip. <laughs> it was like completely full. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's a that provoking initial outrage or that attempt is again it's a really interesting theme. I remember there was one so Paddy Power did it a couple of years ago with the Huddersfield shirt and they they yeah, had a slash, massive logo massive logo across the thing and they announced it and to the extent and God bless them the Daily Mail did a double page you know frothing angry sort of diatribe in you know this is the end of football this is you know the, the selling the beautiful game blah 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 you could re- write the article with chat gpt it's like a sort of you know the, just angry and 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 playing to a sort of romanticized idea of a fan who reads the daily mail and then obviously the rug pull was you know it's nonsense they're not we're not doing that but you had two days i think of it uh, you know, and so that you had a cut quite a few. I mean, two days used to be two news cycles. It's now about fifty news cycles. You know, so you've got that momentum, and then the surfing that obviously then becomes part of the campaign. So you've then got this the expectation of this predictable culture war that you can easily create. As you say, it can go wrong, and I'm wondering about is a boring question about the sort of organisational requirement to get a campaign like that through because we know that clients are risk averse and i wonder if it comes from you have to get to the very top i don't know in terms of and where mark the marketing function how powerful it is within the institute you know on the client side and whether or not they've got the ability to say no we're going to do this and we have to do it quickly and this is how it's going to play <coughs> out and you're going to have to trust us which is cfos and ceos don't particularly like to do traditionally i just struck me about how the logistics of it yeah you you undoubtedly need the very top on an idea like this i think the bit that i don't know i'm not like i'm not familiar with this brand apart from like this campaign and i suppose with paddy power they are the sort of the jester you know the sort of provocateur of that category so i think you've got a strategic and sort of legacy of very controversial bit like do you remember like the blind football ads? Do you remember that from years ago that got banned where they're yeah. k- kicking the cat and stuff? So, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, they've, yeah. they've really pushed yeah. the ball, had loads of ads banned. So, I suppose for them, it's a bit, it's sort of in their DNA and sort of expected, you know, that sort of relationship. Oh, I think cool. the last great one they did was the partnership with Ryan Giggs's brother for their loyalty campaign, which <laughs> was just, that was like, they nailed the, the insight on that. But I think, but with this brand, you know, like if it's, if they're a paddy power, it's already re- it's still going to be hard. Yeah. But for all we know, it's like food delivery. I mean, this might be Tesco's. So like you know, there's sort of con- there's a sort of difference between betting, which is like an entertainment proposition, versus it would be so easy to get talked out of this for trust and 
user behavior and spamming and yeah. data laws and you know there's just so much legal stuff like I, i'm like genuinely and that sounds really boring because it's like a creative grand prix winner but i'm just in awe of like how you get this idea through because like i said just to get like a really bad standard ad out is really hard like the you know the, the toil all the stuff we tear down for being complete shit it's yeah, like and this must have, the blood this, must have, tears. All of this debate must have gone on within about 24 hours or something you know i mean like yeah. to, for it to happen it must have just been that yeah. quick it's somebody's big idea yeah. and it's escalated yeah. up the chain really quickly which yeah. i wonder i wonder if the goodwill of the world cup win maybe has helped it as well like i remember when when i was a kid like Fran, when france won the world cup in 98 like didn't productivity go up in france by like 20 something percent or something right so i wonder if that was just like you know we've just won the world cup maybe maybe the whole team were drunk <laughs> all the senior guys are like quick get this idea too yeah, super quick yeah. or you, you they wake up in the morning and think Oh shit! I said yes to that. It's like a, you know a hangover dream. You know? Yeah, it's like sending no. a text to your ex, but you just sent it to the entire nation of Argentina. Go like, oh fuck! <laughs> right, I'm going to ask you to pick your favourites from the rest. Simon, you go first. Okay, well, out of the golds, uh, I uh, I really liked the Telefonica shout, and I couldn't understand half of what was saying. I wasn't prepared to put it through a translator, but you know, it seemed to be the story of a boxer who's doing quite well, doing all right, but then has a moment in a club where he gets off with a bloke and uh, ends up in a toilet cubicle with him. That's captured by somebody on their phone. It's then sent all around the entire nation as to kind of this boxer's doing this and, you know, the world turns against him. And then and a, in a sort of Hollywood ending, of course, he's having a tough fight, but, you know, his brother comes through and says, come on, son, get off the mat. And he does and... You know, and it, it, it's obviously it's pure Hollywood, pure nonsense. But I did thought I thought it was well done. I thought it was relevant for countries where and and sport where homophobia is still you know big. And I thought it's just a really good, honest tale. Which I I, I just thought, well, any thoughts on shout? Yeah, I thought I agree with you. I thought it was really really well done. And funnily enough, I I didn't understand any of the Spanish bits, but I. No didn't need to and i think exactly. you know, for That's me yeah. for, for me a film like when you're doing like advertising the gold standard is you don't need any work you know like you should be telling a story that you can feel and i think that, that's much stronger and i think I, when i pressed play on it i saw it was five minutes long and i actually thought it was one of the fastest things that i watched going through all of these things because it was just so yeah. well done it was shot really authentically it sort of reminded me a little bit of blood normal like it just had this real authenticity it even the nightclub scenes looked like nightclub scenes and yeah they actually really nightclub, did didn't they yeah, nightclub yeah, yeah. scenes don't actually look like nightclubs <laughs> Sort of the the sports person uh, getting it together with another man in a nightclub. I suddenly thought of the awfulness of when they did that in Ted Lasso. Kind of, yeah, not really contrived. <laughs> this feels actually kind of quite real. Yeah, I like the. I think there's like a nice juxtaposition between boxing. You know, I think that like Ice and Fury and the sort of men, like being outspoken on mental health and that sort of like the strength of being a boxer versus this sort of vulnerability. It's just a powerful combo. I mean, it goes back to kind of Rocky. <laughs> like, you know, it's just sort of, there's something about being like a boxer and that sort of like, you're alone in the middle of the ring and there's like no escape, like playing with some of these more cultural pressures. Like, yeah, I, th I thought it was The other thing I was struck by was, actually it's quite a useful thing to not know what they're talking about. So the language, you know, I, because it's, 
in a different language, but I got the story and it's almost the I didn't need the, them saying to understand what they were talking about. I think it's a really good lesson for me in just like how execution almost trumps all because I was like, when I realized what was going, going on in my first, I was like, oh God, not another purpose film. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, and it's yeah, not, fair. you know, it's not, it's not a new thing. It's not a new story. It felt like very familiar. It would be very easy to be dismissed. Like if somebody had come in and presented it to me, like in the office, it'd be very easy to be dismissive of like, it's a bit, it could be kind of cliche or seen. But like, it just didn't feel like that at all. As soon as I got going, you were like, it, it's just that execution. It's just so on point, like it's so authentic. And uh, and all of the parts, like you said, it was very Hollywood. Like the performances were amazing and heartfelt. And I, yeah, I think well, the other thing that that flurries up is, it, which I think is definitely a thing, which we've lost sort of craft skills. We haven't lost yeah. them, but there's, la yeah. there's a lack of focus on craft yeah. skills. And, and you know, we always, hop back to those glory days of Ridley Scott and all that kind mm. of stuff. But, there, you know, things beautifully made can still yeah. move you, I think. Yeah. I think things that aren't just, like, Addy as well, like you, like a campaign, like, I talk about a lot here, is, like, that Blood Normal campaign. I don't know if you've seen that. Where, again, it's to say that there's no voiceover whatsoever. It just tells you the story. But it's just shot. And I hate the, the word authentic. is obviously, like, terribly overused. But it just feels real legit it's a proper story and you get it and it's not overly explained it's not like a powerpoint presentation put into a film it's just like got a human truth and a human narrative and arc that you can really relate to and like get that feeling and i think that's what this film <laughs> just really really nailed that point about execution because i'm really struck by that because actually i can see hundreds of really great potential bits of work just not making it through that process of the idea doesn't it doesn't thrill people at a pitch or they don't even internally they say yeah i've seen that before or it's boring but how you then get beyond that or whether it's just a question again it's a trust thing where you say look just need to work and trust their ability to pull this off really brilliantly i don't know how you yeah. do that it's a it's a big challenge and there's another crucial part to that challenge of that that process you just described which is also research yeah. So you know, like, like if you if you take that story and we storyboard it, you don't get any of that magic. You know, it becomes a relatively A to B story of sportsman overcoming something and wins the fight at the end. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot of a process of trusting agency partners, the director, and the the treatment that comes through. But I think, yeah, you know, it's it's a collaboration, I guess, between client and agency to to have that faith to go and do it, and the the trust in the right partners to to ultimately deliver it, and why you know a director and a director's treatment brings so much to the to the party. I think as well, there's a bit there which is about the ability, and I'm not for one second saying I have this ability, but I think it's the ability to in in the point when you're selling in the story to 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 bring that, what you feel, to life. You know, that, that's mm. to communicate the emotion within it, which I think that we've all become too reliant on kind of like, here's a data point, here's a data, you know, like kind of like, dun, mm. dun, 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 and like, and actually there's that, there's that great, you know, probably one of the truly great moments from Mad Men was that bit when he sells him Carousel for Kodak, you know, and it's, and it's this amazing speech all about how you feel about your memories, about your children and, all that, and, it, and it's how an idea should be sold, really, because it's, it's what you feel in your gut rather than... And we know 26% of people like to look at photos from when they were, you know, 
It's yeah. It's that kind of beautifully told stories. I think is the yeah. the thing we should probably loads of us struggle to do. I think. I think it's very hard. I, I like really sympathise with clients in this process, but on this sort of point of execution, because we spend all of our working life doing this, and we do it again and again, and we do it for like multiple brands over time, all the way through the year. And then you know, clients, you know, might do it once a year, might be once every two years, every three years, and you know, they're dealing with all the work that they do, you know, all that internal stuff that we don't actually see as agencies and and as, as sort of like creatives. And then we bring them in a room and we do this big presentation. And if they've done a pitch, they've probably seen like three, four, five of them. And there's a lot of imagination required. There's a lot of language and nuance and joining the dots that you get through experience, but also like the world that you see and having worked with directors and seeing the, the real nuts and bolts of that process over time that you recognize when something can take that next level. And it's really, I think it's really hard. And there's, there's a, at times an unfair expectation on the client just to be able to understand that language and, and take that language on, which is why I sort of come back to why the, the relationships are so important. And I think one of the things, just the feature of this industry needs to try to protect in a world of less and less retainers is how we maintain those healthier relationships to enable work like this to actually be made. Because in that sort of project world where budgets are just cut down, there's less and less time to spend with each other to, to go on those journeys properly. You know, everything's like, do it yesterday. And the knock-on effect of that, which I think is what you were starting with saying, is that craft dissipates because there isn't the time there and there isn't the time to take people on those <laughs> journeys. And then it's just like, okay, well, do I take that thing that's really hard to evaluate or do I do the more simple thing? And the truth is, decisions are made on what's easiest to evaluate, not necessarily what's right. And that's what we've just got to try and retain that and build those relationships to get that work out. Yeah. And when you then see a piece of work like this, I don't see the joins. I get really irritated where I say, okay, I can see the strategy deck. It's almost like you can, it's like when you read a bad story or read a bad book, or when you listen to dialogue in a bad detective show you can see it written down you can see what you know the nuts and bolts of it and I don't want to see that it's almost like that's a that's you haven't done enough drafts or you haven't done enough work you haven't worked hard enough to get rid of all of that and I think there's a sometimes even the temptation to show how show our work it's clear how clever we are look how clever we've done look how much homework we've done on this I want you to know it, that well that's my point of like why for me the gold standard is no VO because it's very easy and tempting when you've spent, you go through these processes and you read all these amazing decks and everyone gets excited. It's like, tell them that. I love that. But, but that's like, mm. that's our strategy. <laughs> like, that's not how we're going to get to the output that we want. And I think, like, one of a big load, like, all the research that I've done over the last, like, 10 years or whatever, you know, one of the big learnings I get from consumers is no one wants to be told what to do or what to think or what to feel. So like our jobs and what I think like this campaign does is it puts a story out there that has a point of view and you can believe it, you can buy into it or you can disagree with it. And that's going to be like much more powerful than just ham-fistedly telling them exactly what we think about values or about sexuality. You know, we're demonstrating who we are, what we believe in, and we're eliciting that feeling. And not only is that more powerful just in terms of like creativity, but it's actually more powerful in terms of effectiveness than all the, you know, why we do all of this. Well, that is that the beauty, uh, there's that great phrase that's used all the time in the world of film called suspension of disbelief. And that's that 
when when we gave right that's what we have we have like we don't think this is an ad or this is trying to sell me a product or tell me a purpose or you know something like that this is just a great story and i'm going along with it and i'm getting the feels from it because for the moment i'm watching it i believe it i believe this is a boxer i believe that is his brother you know i'm, I'm in yeah. the zone I saw this great video, I don't know if you've seen it, and it's, it's a professor at Chicago University who he teaches creative writing. And he does this incredible speech uh, where he's saying that basically the job of any text is to change how your readers see the world. That's like the primary function. That's where the value comes from. You know, you lay out an argument and a thought and an idea and the role of that is to change how they see their world, however big or small that is. And like, I think that's the same for brands, you know, we want to change how people see the world. That can be as small as when Magnus put ice into a pint glass to, with cider and change how we all saw cider and be like, what the hell is that? Who's why has someone got ice cubes in a pint glass, you <laughs> lunatic? But it, or it can be as big as societal issues like this. But I think, you know, we want to make people think, we want to get people to question what we've told them because that's what's going to really actually stick in their brain and actually really drive that kind of brand recall whereas if we just close the gap for them you know we don't allow for curiosity or people to start to to surprise them to delight them then actually why are they going to think about us again like we've already just told them the whole story you know we've told them the start middle end and what we want them to think and feel and it's immediately forgotten and just before we move on from this i i, I guess if i'm a client i'm thinking make my logo bigger as in how where do i come into this this is a lovely story it's a piece of film i could watch in a, a short cinema festival but what's it got to do with me and are the is the audience ever going to give me any credit is it what role is this playing for me trying to connect it to my brand it's good for gossiping about sports celebrities on your phone if you're having a nightclub <laughs> tell it to Hugh Edwards have i you know have i just let the, my agency run wild and go win an award. That's my dilemma. I've got to take this to well, the board now. I suspect that the overall message that we don't know because we don't speak Spanish was something about don't spread hate online and don't don't mm. use your communications equipment for nefarious purposes. I suspect they yeah. did use the father so that the brother comes into the to the side of the boxing ring but i think it was his dad is in like a truck and sends him that text yeah, yeah, yeah. The fight when yeah. he's warming yeah. up so there yeah. probably is something there about yeah like that this can connect you <laughs> given i didn't know what they were talking about it could all be about the latest <laughs> telephonica deal that they should be you know yeah, yeah. they should be migrating from one account to another and you know it, it could be telephonica says homosexuals shouldn't be in sport for all we know <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah, it looked good. We liked it. It did. Uh, right, David, just give us, a, give us your best shot in terms of what you liked. What, as in what we haven't talked about or my yeah. best overall. Yeah. Best, all right. I'm going to go with one that I think might be controversial. I'm going to go with Nike Multiverse. Ooh. Oh. Mais non, quoi. Considering power in addition to speed, your argument just collapses. Face the fact. Mbappé will destroy Ronaldinho. That's just your French bias speaking, Rousseau. 2006, Ronaldinho will beat him for sure. Okay, you know what? What if we create a multiverse and have them play against each other? 
Bonnie? Quer você? Gentlemen, you're about to participate in a unique experiment. We're going to prove by fact who is better, Ronaldinho or Mbappé. This is a very MySpace type conversation now. It feels no. Well, I think because the other ones are all sort of like a bit purposey or similar, and I suppose what I sort of liked about it was just the pure nostalgia for good old Nike ads. And I don't think it was up to that level, but it's like the first time I can remember seeing Nike do like a big World Cup thing since right the future. And I might have just missed them all. But, and I don't think it was as good as like the airport in 94 or, you know, the hell cage football of the sort of, but there was something just like, it's a proper football sort of insight, I suppose, a conversation of like who's better through the, the generations and the eras, which yeah. is a little bit weird for Nike because normally there is no insight, like they're sort of creating it. And I suppose there was a bit of a riff of, you know, the multiverse, the Marvel sort of world as well as just metaverse and all that stuff. And I keep hearing loads and loads of stuff about Gen Z being really into nostalgia, even though I think just everyone's into nostalgia. I think that's just like, like culture itself. But I don't know. I just thought there was like, I sort of thought it was ridiculous. It was the very dodgy CGI. But at the same time, I sort of just watched it and I was sort of smiling throughout. And it just sort of like reminded me of times gone by. And at least there was an idea in it. And yeah. Yeah. I thought it was very Ready Player One. I thought it was, uh, yeah. it was just a completely Ready Player One. You know? That's what... Yeah. I just sort of like the ridiculousness of it. And even yeah, the fact yeah. they had that really like derby character in it from Ireland who like put his dad in it and stuff. Yeah. It was just, I don't know, it just didn't take itself so seriously. And then like a, a world of marketing. And like when I look through this list, like almost everything is so achingly serious. Yeah. Apart from yeah. this one and the delivery one. It's worth contrasting this with the Rick and Morty for Adidas as well, which is similarly I thought was very entertaining and I wasn't yeah. sure which one I preferred. Yeah. But I think I think like, again, going back to that point on the fir- the first campaign we talked about, it's like, is anyone gonna talk about that first campaign that's a football like a, a sports fan? Kind of question mark. I can imagine people really talking about this, like just sparking that conversation of like Who's the better player? Is it entertaining? Like even getting into weird science, the track. I remember the first time I saw weird science, you know, it just ticked loads of boxes. And I don't think it's like the greatest ad ever, but at the same time, I watched it and I was like, that was fun. There's a part of me that wants that to be the direction. I've had enough of purpose. I've had enough of my milk lecturing me about my habits and, you know, all my views on things. and, And I know why, and I get it and I understand it intellectually, but just, Make me laugh. Give me mash, get smash. You know, it's yeah. that sort of, I, I'm a bit tired. And if if Nike and Addy, you know, Nike's often in sport, particularly held up as the directional brand in terms of creativity. If this is where they're going, then, okay, great. Let them, it was let just them so fun. Like, you know, even sport, you know, I like, I like subscribe to The Athletic. And, you know, it's so data and deep and xg yeah. and sport just football for me as i like got so you know like when i first started what like memories of the premiership you had like mickey quinn who was like fatter than my uncle was like playing up front and like it just felt like it was in touching distance and everything's yeah. just got like so elite so professional and i just watched this and i just thought 
it just looks like everyone's having so much fun. Like yeah. even just, you know, when it's like, it's Ronaldo to Ronaldo and then fat Ronaldo comes in and it just, you know, it just, it just like keeps going. And it's like just the sort of riffing off it. And I was like, I don't know. I just found it kind of infectious. And I thought the, the track really helped. And again, you know, it's, you, we look at people like Nike, all these trends from like a Gen Z audience. We're like, right, we've got to do it in like six seconds. And Nike are like, fuck that. This is like five minutes, but it's just yeah. going to be an absolute rip roar and blast of tricks, stupidness, video game culture, cinema culture, music, like just all of it coming together. And like I say, it just, yeah, it just made me smile versus a lot of the others where I was just like, yeah, okay, I get it. It's, it's an award winner. We've talked yeah. about this. We've talked about this before. We talked about right future and, and like some of the truly great ads. And I, and I think it is, I don't think it's right up there like that, but I think it's, no. a, it's a very enjoyable Big Mac as it were, you know, you're never going to go yeah. uh, like, oh, you're going to go, I really enjoyed that Big Mac, but you've forgotten about it by next week, you know? Yeah, but, it's, but in a way, it's sort of like, that's like what, yeah, you, sometimes you just, that's what you want. Yeah. But it's what it's riffing off, right? It's like the Marvel multiverse. Yeah, yeah. It's just preposterous yeah. and it's stupid and it's silly. And the reason it's like won against like DC is it's fun and it's funny and it sort of yeah, yeah. takes the piss out of itself. And I sort of feel like kind of nailed that. And I, I agree with you, it's nowhere near as good as like the pantheon of Nike ads that are some of the greatest ever. But like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, can, I completely agree with you. I, I thought it was very fun. Again, very good craft skills as well on this. I thought it was yeah. very, very well executed. I thought it was funny. It's odd how nostalgic the multiverse suddenly become. You know, it's this time last year... I was thinking, oh, this maybe this is the future, you know, maybe you know Zuckerberg and his goggles and all of that is going to be that's what we're going to do, and I have to take this seriously. Now we'll, you know, that's moved on to AI, and we're talking about all of that. Multiverse suddenly feels, God, how long ago was this? You know, did what is this really the the future? You know, all these these ideas that suddenly think, oh well, no, that's just something we we used to talk about. It's quite odd. Yeah, well, it, it was very conspicuous by its absence. Uh, can so I don't think I've, and I've read a few. I don't think anyone mentioned that word the whole time. And obviously, AI is now the the hot topic. It's and... possibly because nobody built anything that was multiversy. That might be why there wasn't anything. It was just but a the, word. The problem is like technology is nobody likes technology. People like utility and cost savings. And the problem with like the multiverse concept is it gets in the way of you doing stuff. Like you know, putting a headset on. Mm. inherently prevents its utility so i just don't know if it's ever even like the new apple one I'm, i just i'm not convinced like apple stepping into it doesn't mean it's going to work and they've got a load of failures behind them that haven't been the iphone or whatever and i just don't think it integrates into your life in a useful like it's going to be for specific tasks rather than these sort of you know enable every task and every part of life to to fit into it yeah yeah well listen I need to, uh... your favorite richard well, my favourite actually isn't on the can list. It's one that I did a thing on with... It's this week. It's about... It's the orange ad for the Women's World Cup, which yeah. I think we should do a separate thing on because I think it's okay. it's really interesting. And I'll tee that up without going into any detail, but I'm going to put a link in the show notes so people understand, you know get what I'm talking about. But it's a very clever play on Women's World Cup, but there is a sort of couple of questions in relation to it. I'm now got. I'm fighting with the uh, bin man now. So nice. in the background. So uh, listen. I'm. Hang on. Let, I'm going to let them pick up the uh, recycling. Hang on. Bear with me. This is this is 
pure partridge. Getting binned <laughs> off by the bin man. Not a, when the bin man, and I've got the hoover in the background, this is this. <laughs> my dreams of a home studio are falling around my bloody ears. Right. So I am going to. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. How difficult could it be? He's got to pick up a fucking bin and put it in a. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, there's a Frankie Boyle sketch about this, isn't it? About you know how much shouting they do. They could easily work this out with <laughs> at the depot. Just say, right, I'll stand at the thing. You pick up the bins and put them in the van. Stop shouting. I'm going to draw out David. It was great to have you here. Thank you very much for your input. We might have you Thanks back some. Seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah, <laughs> far, far more than I do. I won't have really? it said. Yeah, right. Any time. Simon, thank you for your, uh, as ever. Yes. Till the next time, till the next big idea. Take care. Right. Got there. Thank you.